Well, take your Bibles and open this morning to Romans chapter 13. Uh, we've been working through the book of Romans, and we come, we've come to this section, Romans chapter 13. And as I said before, this is going to be several sermons. We're going to work through a number of different uh, issues uh, in this section. This section from Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 7, is about government. How does the Christian relate to government? That's really the issue that we're trying to unpack here in these verses. And so for Mother's Day, what better sermon to preach on than capital punishment. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just teasing. We're going we're to cover that next week. <laughs> but uh, we are, we are going to cover this issue of government, and we're going to spend a lot of time on it because really it's a very complex thing that has to be understood if we're going to do what it is that is right as Christians. And so uh, last week, over the last two weeks, we unpacked verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 13, and really the command that sort of governs all of these verses is the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, every person is to be in Objection to the governing authorities. He commands us as Christians to be submitted to government. We are commanded by God to do that. And we looked for two weeks about how, what that means in our hearts, that it's a heart issue, and that, that that means that not only does our heart submit, but also in our life we submit in obedience to the government to the extent that we are able. And we looked at some caveats, some categories of areas where it's okay to be non-submissive. There are ways that it's okay to not submit to the government, but there are very few and far between. And by by and large, our job is to submit to what the government wants us to do. And what we're going to do this morning is come to verses 3 and 4 and unpack these two verses over the next two weeks as well. So look there with me in verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, he says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is, the ruler, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, as you can see, there's a lot in that passage that needs to be understood, but what you notice is that there's one word that's repeated twice. It's the word minister. That's the word where we get the word deacon in Greek. It's diakonos, and it means a person who is a servant. Ultimately, government serves God, and so the title of the sermon this morning is God's Servants. Now, maybe if you're like me, you've studied some of history. You probably had to in high school. You took history classes, European history, various things. And if you look over the course of human history, what you find is all sorts of attempts to govern humanity, don't we? There's, there's history of government. And really what you see is a, a host of different forms of government and just no, almost nothing but failure when it comes to government, just sorrow and failure and pain. You know, you can think about the concept of the emperor, right? The emperor, whether east or west, the emperors all failed. You you look at the concept of a religious theocracy, like under Islam, that reality of Sharia law and how it governs, but it, it, it's failed, really. And then you think about other forms of government, like the parliamentary monarchy in England, right? There's structural problems that are components in there, or the Senate of ancient Athens in Greece, and the reality that that fell apart as well. And even more close to home, we have a representative democracy, right? A representative republic here in America, and yet... I think all of those things share that one thing in common. All forms of government have or will ultimately fail. And I think even in our own hearts, we know innately that America will eventually collapse, won't it? If God doesn't send the Lord Jesus Christ to come, he, America will collapse eventually. Every form of government has failed in some capacity, and ultimately all government does fail. 
You might say, well, that, that, that's just because people are bad and government is bad, and so really there should be no government, and this is just man sort of trying to do something on his own to organize himself, sort of Lord of the Flies style, and the strongest wins. Or maybe you might think to yourself, well, when my government that I voted for is in power, then it's good, but any other government is bad. And that's not true either, is it? When, when even the most godly leaders we have over us are still sinners. And so no matter what government we have, ultimately government is broken and it will fail. And so you might begin to think that government is just an evil thing. But that's not true, actually. And this is point one on your outline if you're taking notes, God's design. God's design. Now, when we look back over government in history, of course, it's broken. And yet, God has, in fact, created government for the good of His people. God has created government for the good of His people. And in fact, the concept of government is what we would call a common grace. It's a common grace over the all peoples in the world, actually. And if you look at point A there, that's the point A, common grace. Now, what is a common grace? What does that mean? Well, here's a helpful definition. Common grace, as an expression of the goodness of God, is every favor falling short of salvation which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity, and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. In other words, what is common grace? Common grace is just God's kindnesses that are laced into the fabric of creation that He has built by his sovereign hand. And government is one of those common graces. God has designed government as a common grace to help people. In fact, God told Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, you remember the flood, we have the flood event, and God tells Noah, he essentially establishes the basis for all government and humanity. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. In other words, God, in a remarkable way, creates the foundational necessity for government in humanity. God says that should exist. There should be governmental authority over people. Someone has the right to enforce justice where someone has usurped God's order for life. Enforcement of justice is right. They might say, well, how does that provide for general government? That verse just says that you should kill someone who kills somebody else, but Obviously, you think about it, what's the biggest crime you can commit? What's the largest crime? Well, ultimately, it's murder, right? Whether it's one person or many people, murder sort of ranks as the highest thing, premeditated murder. I think we even feel this in our day, don't we? Uh, All sorts of other acts are punishable by the law, but murder, whether one victim or many, is really seen as the height of evil, isn't it? It's really the height of wickedness to kill someone else. And so, Murder being the highest and everything that falls underneath it, God's design is for there to be human government in how he has ordered the world. Of course, that government is always broken in some sense, and yet government is a gift of God to control the world. You say, why? Why do we even need that? Well, it should be fairly obvious, right? What are people? People are sinners. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you take a person who's not a Christian and you remove any kind of potential for punishment for sin, what will happen to that sin nature? It will run rampant. And so God, in his kindness, by common grace, has established government to restrain the sins of men. And so governments are servants of God. They're servants of God. Now, you might ask the question, though, what about when the sinners are in the government, right? That's the problem. We have, I see how government can control sin, but what about when the sinners are in the government? Then what do we do, right? And what's interesting here is that Paul actually addresses this idea. Look at chapter 13, verses 3 and 4 again. 
And I read these already for you, but what's interesting about the structure of these verses is if you notice at the beginning of verse 3, you have this general statement. He says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. That's a general statement. And then if you look at the end of verse 4, he puts another general statement there. He says, for it, that is government, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Both of those are general statements. And then in the middle of those two general statements, look what he does. This is so interesting. He says, do you want to have no fear of authority? And he makes it very personal. He says, you want to have no fear of authority? Then these are the things you should do. And he personalizes those general statements. So we have two general statements on the outside, personal statements on the inside. So what we're going to do is look first at the general ideas, and then we'll look at the personal application for us. So this is point B on your outline, general practice, general practice. If you look at verse 3, point, uh, at the beginning, he says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil, but for evil. Now, what's interesting here is that the relative goodness of the government is not the issue that Paul is dealing with. Paul isn't dealing with what the government is like relatively to the righteousness of God. What he's, in fact, he's writing this letter to Christians in Rome. Of all the places where he could be saying government is bad, Rome would be the place. And yet he doesn't say that. In fact, it's very interesting. There's very little that's good about Nero, and yet he says in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 3, he says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. Uh, literally, what he's saying is that, that good behavior, you shouldn't be afraid, right? The, the rulers are not a fear to good works. Rulers are not a fear to good works. And what Paul is expressing here is this general principle. Government is intended, that is, rulers or governmental authorities are not a cause of fear to those who obey. Rulers, governments are not a cause of fear to those who, be, uh, who obey. Uh, Paul is saying that proper behavior, doing what is good, generally keeps you off the radar of the authorities, doesn't it? If you just generally obey what the government calls you to do, that, that generally will keep you off their radar. If you pay your taxes, you stay in line, you obey the law as a general rule, you don't need to fear the government. You don't need to. Now, I think in America, we tend to like sort of the idea of fearing government control. And I think a large, a large part of that is due to our American heritage. But we don't need to fear if we do what's right, generally, right? Like, if you just do what's right and you obey the law, there's nothing to fear from the government. Now, this begs two questions, really. The first question is this. Why is that true? Why is it that if we obey, we don't need to fear them? And the second question is, what about government that hates Christians? Like, specifically, government that is intentionally anti-Christian. What do we do with those two things? The first question, why is that true, can be answered this way. Think about what motivates unbelieving government. What motivates the president? What motivates the governors? What motivates presidents of both sides of the aisle, both parties, all, all sorts of different people, government not only in America but in the world? What motivates government by and large? Ultimately, the motivation for government, there's really two things, I think. One is power and the other is money. Uh, power and money are what motivate government generally, right? That's why there's imperialism, all sorts of different governmental systems. All of those are structured around those two ideas. And no matter what is motivating to the government, as a general rule, governments don't like anarchy, do they? Governments don't like anarchy. Why? Because anarchy threatens power. And when the power goes away, what else stops? The money, right? So ultimately, governments don't like anarchy. They want to keep things under control. Anarchy threatens them. And so even though they're not motivated by necessarily righteousness, they like stability. All governments like stability. And so they like to punish those who cause instability. Who causes instability? Well, 
criminals, rebels, revolutionaries, right? Even the reason the, the, the emperors persecuted Christians in the ancient world was because they said Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord, and that causes instability in the Roman Empire. And so that's why they want stability. And so that brings us to the second question. Here's the second question. What about government that hates Christians? Aren't they a fear for good behavior? And my answer would be yes. They are a fear for good behavior. But that isn't the rule. That's the exception. Most of the time, the government doesn't function that way. And even in those cases, I think Paul would tell us that we can obey them 100% until they ask us to sin, in which case we can disobey and then receive whatever consequence that comes to us. And so generally, doing what is right should keep us from fear. And even, I would say, when the government is actually seeking to persecute us, we can still walk in respectful ways toward the government. There's another component to what the government does for God on the general principle level, and that's at the end of verse 4. Look at the end of verse 4 here. It's an amazing statement. It says, for it, that is government, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And this is point C on your outline, God's avenger. God's avenger. Now notice, he says that government is an avenger for the one who practices evil. In other words, what is, what is government intended by God to do? Government is intended to bring vengeance on wrongdoers. That God's design for government is that it would bring vengeance on wrongdoers. In fact, if you just look above that phrase, notice what it says. Paul says, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. What's a sword used for? A sword is used for taking life, isn't it? So when it says the government bears the sword, what that means is the government metaphorically holds a sword in its hand and says, we have the right to take life. And Paul says that's right that the government bears the sword. The government has the right to take life, to carry the sword. That's an important statement for Paul to make because think back to where we started in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. By the one, the one who sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. In other words, who has the right to carry out that authority? The government has the right to carry out that authority. Only the government in human institutions has the right to carry out the authority of capital punishment, of taking a life. And what's interesting here is that Paul uses the word avenger for a reason. Vengeance from God comes through government on evildoers. Now, if you remember back to Kevin's sermon at the end of chapter 12, what, is, what are we not allowed to do as Christians? Look up in chapter 12. Look at verse 19. He says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance comes from God and not from us. We don't have the right to take our own revenge on sinners that sin against us. But who does have the right? Who has the right to exact vengeance on wrongdoers? And Paul says, the government does. The government has the right to avenge wrongdoers, to take their lives. And Paul says at the end of that verse that it is to bring wrath on the one who practices evil, to bring wrath on the wrongdoer. What, now, think about this. Is that human wrath or God's wrath? Whose wrath is being brought on the wrongdoer there? And the answer is yes, right? It's both. It's not only the human wrath of the government because of the violation of the law, but it is also ultimately God's wrath because government is the servant of God to bring about this vengeance. And so because governments are God's servants, the wrath of the government is the wrath of God when it is exercised against wrongdoing. 
So we've seen that government is ultimately from God, that government is a common grace from God, and, and we've seen that government rewards good behavior and punishes evil behavior, and that God's vengeance is ultimately carried out through government in punishing wrongdoers. But there's sort of a middle section in these verses, and that's dealing with us personally, and so this is point two on your outline, no fear. And as I said, Paul brings us home personally for us. He wants to apply this to us individually, to each one of us here right? To each one of us. And when I was growing up, there was a brand called No Fear. Anyone remember the brand No Fear? I think they've since gone (laughs) belly up. I don't know, but uh, they didn't put a question mark after it, No Fear. They should have. Basically, the message of No Fear was just do foolish things and don't be afraid of the consequences. Obviously, that's a terrible message. But Paul asks us a question. Look at chapter, chapter 13, verse 3. He says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. And then he says, do you want to have no fear of authority? This is a rhetorical question. You want to have no fear of the government? What should you do? And the answer is actually very simple. Look what he says. He says, do what is good and you will have praise from the same. What's he saying? He's saying the same general statement, but applied to us. You want to have no fear of the law? Then do what's right and you don't need to be afraid. Now, obviously, that's for the most part, right? This is a general principle. There are obviously times when that doesn't work, but Paul is taking that general principle and applying it to us. You don't need to fear the government. Generally, if you obey the law and do what is right, you have nothing to fear. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm driving and I see a motorcycle police officer sitting on the side of the road, I have an instant adrenaline bump. Anyone else have that? I don't know why. I just have this instant adrenaline thing. And what's the first natural reaction that we do when we see a motorcycle cop like that? We hit the brakes. Why? We hit the brakes and we look down at the speedometer. Why? Because there's that moment there where you think to yourself, I'm probably speeding. (laughs) And that guy is going to give me a ticket. What's happening in my brain at that moment? I'm afraid of the government. Why am I afraid of the government? Because I'm a speeder right? It's not because I'm doing what's right. It's because I'm speeding. I have a problem, and my problem causes me fear of motorcycle officers, right? Now, I don't know that guy on the motorcycle. I've never met him. He's not a harsh man. He probably has a family. I don't know anything about him, and yet I'm afraid of him. Why? It's not his fault. It has nothing to do with the government. The fault is mine, isn't it? And what Paul here is saying is that if you want to have no fear of police officers on the street again, what should you do? You should obey the speed limit. You should not California stop. You should signal when you change lanes. You should wear your seatbelt. You should not text while you drive. And guess what? You'll have nothing to fear. If you, if you always obey the law, there's nothing to fear, right? There's nothing to fear. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us. You don't need to fear when you do what's right. Now, obviously, there are situations where that isn't true, and and those are those exception situations, like hiding Jews during World War II in Germany or preaching the gospel in Spain under the uh, the dictator Franco. There are ways that government can do those things, and they do happen. I don't, don't want to make light of those, but that isn't the normal practice of government. The normal practice of government is not those things. Those are exceptions. The normal practice of government is to punish wrongdoers and to give praise to good doers and That's what the government does. There's a ministry called Stewardship Services Foundation run by a dear man named Jim Rickard, and he does my taxes every year. Uh, And he has this on his website. There's this statement. It should show up on the back here. He says, beware of those who use scare tactics to try to sell their products or encourage you to attend their conferences based on the premise that the IRS has an agenda to attack churches and ministers. That is a myth. 
In my 35 years of ministry serving thousands of pastors and missionaries and assisting them in preparing their federal and state tax returns, I have never known of a time when I felt the IRS had an agenda attacking pastors, ministers, and their churches. What's Jim doing? He's giving us personal testimony that this is true even here in America. The government is not intentionally coming after us, and we don't need to be afraid of them if we do what's right. That's the principle that Paul is putting into our hearts and lives. And I think we like things like conspiracy theories and we like espionage and all those things, right? That's why there's entire movie industries that are built around that. But friends, that's just not generally the case. It's not generally the case. It could happen, but it's not happening now. And it's not generally the way that things happen. And so if you obey, you don't need to fear the government. Do what's right and there's no fear. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look down in verse 4, at the beginning of verse 4. He says, for it, that is government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. This is so interesting. Paul says, government is a minister for good, but if you disobey, you should be afraid. Why? Because the government has the right to punish disobedience. If you disobey the government, unless it's for the sake of obeying God, you should be afraid. In fact, the government has the right to punish you. God has actually given the government the right to punish you. And even if their motives are bad, the punishment is right because you've chosen to disobey him. I've heard people use this passage to justify disobedience by saying that the only government that we have to submit to is good government. Uh, This is interesting. What they do is they take verse 4 and they say, government is a minister of God for good. But if you have a government that's not good, then you don't have to submit to them because they're not good anymore. But that's not what Paul's saying. That inverts exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that all government generally functions for our good. He's not saying only good government must be submitted to. That's not what the text is saying at all. And I want to show you that. There's at least four reasons why, right? That doesn't make sense. The first one is that historically, remember, Paul is writing to the Romans and he gives these commands. If he's saying only submit to good government, this letter, this section of the letter makes no sense. Uh, Paul would never have written this because he's writing to to Christians in Rome, of all places, where Nero was the emperor. And so that just evacuates, that interpretation evacuates any meaning out of the text. Second, Paul has already told us up in verse 1 that the powers that be are ordained by God. That the powers that be are ordained by God. In other words, to say that you only have to submit to good government, not the ordained government, would be to invert what he said in verse 1, right? It, it, It totally violates the principle of hermeneutics here. Third, both Paul and Peter tell us the idea that submitting and doing what is right is worthy of condemnation. And we don't have time, but if you look up 1 Peter 1, verse 20, he gives us that as an example. Submission is worthy of commendation. And lastly, number four, if you take that interpretation, it destroys the meaning of this passage, doesn't it? If you say that we only have to submit to government that's good, we don't have to submit to government generally, what that means is that we become the new evaluators of what is good. Who gets to determine who's good and who's not good? Well, if we say it's us, and I say, well, I'm the one who evaluates goodness or not goodness in the government, suddenly, instead of God being the one who's in charge of government, I am, and I reject government based on my notions of goodness. And if you say, well, no, it's not me who's good in in terms of government, it's the Bible that's that's the evaluation of good or bad government, then I would submit to you that that would make this text meaningless, because there's never been a government that submits completely to the Scripture, 
There's never been a perfect leader in the history of the world that submits to the Bible. And so if we just say, well, I only have to do what specifically is commanded in the Bible, then I would say what you need to do is submit to government. And so Paul is not arguing that you only have to submit to good government. He's not. Paul is saying you must submit to all government because all government acts as a servant of God. And the general rule is that it is our responsibility as Christians to fulfill chapter 1, chapter 13, verse 1a. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And the reason for that is that God is good. Not that government is good, but that God is good and that government functions as a servant of God and God loves his children and uses government to accomplish his ends. That's super important. And I know in America, we, we, even in saying this, we're sort of forfeiting much of what we sort of hold as American values. It's sort of part and parcel of being an American, isn't it? In fact, our, our country was founded on revolution. And so there's a part of us that sort of innately likes the idea of overthrow. But as Christians, right, as Christians, that's not good. We're not American primarily or British. We're not Republican or Democrat. We're not rich or poor, right? We're none of those things. Those things are not our primary identifying mark in terms of our loyalties. What is our primary identifying mark in terms of who we are loyal to? This is point three on your outline, citizens of heaven, citizens of heaven. Look over in Philippians chapter three, verse 20 with me. Philippians chapter three. uh, Joe read this for us this morning. Verses 20 and 21. Paul says this. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And what's he saying? Paul is saying that ultimately our citizenship is heavenly. It's not earthly. We're not primarily Republican or Democrat. We're not primarily American or British. We're not primarily any of those things. Those are all way down the list. Those are secondary things. We are primarily, as Christians, citizens of heaven. We're citizens of heaven. Some people use this verse to justify wrongdoing. They say, my citizenship is in heaven, therefore I don't need to obey the earthly government. (laughs) But that's, that's obviously reading that exactly backwards again, isn't it? That's exactly the opposite of what this text is saying. In fact, if you look up in verses 18 and 19, look what Paul says. He says, many walk of whom I often have told you and now tell you even weeping. So these are people who are professing Christians and Paul is weeping over this reality. He says, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. What is the mark of a person who says, my citizenship is in heaven, I can rebel against government? It's setting your mind on earthly things. It's false evil motives that would cause you to say, I refuse to pay my taxes. What's the real root of that? You can say all sorts of things about how you reject government, but the real root of that is probably greed. That's the problem, right? It's setting our minds on earthly things instead of heavenly things and understanding that our citizenship is with God in heaven alone. In other words, what Paul is saying is that these people are all about themselves. They, they profess Christ, but they use their lives to dishonor God. And that's not what Paul is saying. So what is Paul saying here when he says our citizenship is in heaven? Well, in verse 20, that word citizenship in Greek 
It's an interesting word. It's the word for commonwealth or country. It's a word that sort of describes a nation or a state. It's a commonwealth. And what Paul is saying is that what we are as Christians is like we're a little colony here on earth. (laughs) We're a little colony here. We're believers and we're here, but we're actually members of another country that's distant, right? That, That country is away from us, but we're in this colony here on earth. We're foreigners, we're strangers. Paul calls us aliens of this earth. Earth isn't ultimately our home. And so, of course, governments will rise and fall, but for us who are just colonists, it doesn't matter, right? And what do we know as colonists? Paul tells us at the end of verse 20, right? From which, he says, we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, a day is coming. This is a real day in history when Jesus, who is the true king of the universe, will come and he will take back this colony. (laughs) Our king will come and take back what is rightfully his, that has been in rebellion, this colony that has been in rebellion against him. He will come and he will bring the world under his sovereign, loving, righteous rule. And listen, on that day, there'll be perfect government. (laughs) Government will be perfect. Everything will work perfectly. And until that day, there will be no perfect government. And so what ought we to do as citizens of heaven? Listen, Paul calls him, look what he says, we eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only has he saved our souls, but he will someday come and fix everything that is broken. And so our responsibility, listen, is to remember this. America is not our hope. Friends, America is not our hope. We love our country. Blessed as we are to be born here and to live here, America is not our hope. And the next presidential election and the midterm elections are not our hope. They're not our hope. And moving to a more conservative state is not our hope. And doing all of those things is not our hope. What is our hope? Our hope is our king who will come and redeem this world. And between now and when he comes, what is our responsibility as citizens of heaven? We're colonists, and what ought we to do? We ought to live according to that principle. What does that look like? Well, I think there's at least four things we should do. The first thing that we should do is thank God for the common grace of government, in spite of the fact that it's weak and broken. We should thank God. Joe even prayed this morning in the call to worship. He thanked God for our government. Why? I didn't tell him to do that. Why? Because he's submitting himself to King Jesus, which causes him to pray, thank you, Lord, for the government that you've given to us. We trust that it is your servant for our good. Second, we need to remember that God's command is for us to trust him and not government officials to trust his sovereignty in governments. We need to trust that ultimately God is in control of this planet and he is bringing it to that end when Jesus will come and take his throne. And third, we need to remember that our citizenship is in heaven and someday Jesus will indeed come. And fourth, we need to live for that day. Live for that day. Are you living for that day? Are you living for the day when Jesus will return again? And are you sharing that that is true? You know, when Paul went to Athens, when he preached the gospel, he said, God has fixed a day when Jesus will come. And so he has told all men everywhere to repent. Is that the message that comes out of your mouth or are you telling people of the other party to repent? (laughs) Is our message a message of Christ and repentance or is our message a message of earthly politics? Listen, friends, Jesus is our king. 
Jesus is our king. And if we trust that he will come someday and fix the world, then we can happily live as colonists here and remind everybody else that the true king is coming and that they should bow their knee to him before he returns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your grace in government. Lord, we bless you that you have been so kind to us in giving us governing authorities. Lord, we know no matter what side of the political aisle we sit on, we know that if you took the reins off of government and you let the world descend into anarchy, Lord, we would not be blessed by that. So, Lord, we bless you and we praise you for government. Lord, we know it is your common grace, even to unbelievers, even to people who reject your authority, Lord, you have kindly and mercifully granted this common grace to them. And, Lord, that government is your servant for the praise of those who do right and for the punishment of those who do evil. And ultimately, Lord, we know that every government is broken, but that a day is coming when the true king will come and he will have an absolute monarchy on the earth and everyone will bow their knee to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us look forward to that day to set our minds on heavenly things and not on earthly things and to remind ourselves of our king who is coming back again. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you through him now. And Lord, help us to pray for the coming or the return of the one who will come. And Lord, I pray that you would help us also to be messengers, Lord, to be witnesses that this is true. Lord, that you have, Lord, fixed a day when Jesus will come. And so you are right now calling all men everywhere to repent. Lord, we pray that Jesus would come quickly. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, who's not a citizen of heaven, Lord, I pray that you would show them that they are living for ashes. You would open their eyes to the glory of a king who would not only come to rule, but would come first to suffer and die. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for his love for us. Thank you for his sovereignty. Lord, we pray these things for his namesake. Amen.